0: hello and welcome to the let's talk transformation podcasts in this episode we will be discussing the biggest challenge we are all facing in the digital age having to constantly learn unlearn and relearn and what it means for leaders and organizations moving forward i am delighted to welcome edward hess best-selling author of 13 books, a professor of business administration, Darden School of Business, University of Virginia. Ed, welcome to the show. Thank you for having me, Susie. Thank you for accepting. Ed, you have dedicated your career with 20 years in the business world as a senior executive, and now your research, to optimum organizational and human performance, particularly installing learning and innovation systems that are designed to enable high human behavioral performance in the digital age. This is an objective and even more so a purpose we both share to create a culture of learning, courage, humility and performance as we move into these more interconnected workplaces. I wanted us to focus in more particularly on your most recent book, Hyperlearning, How to Adapt to the Speed of Change. Can you take us through the Idea of hyper learning, what it is, and why it is becoming so important.
1: Yes, yes. Hyper learning is basically high quality, consistent learning, unlearning, and relearning. And why is unlearning and relearning all of a sudden becoming so important? (sighs) Hmm. Because of technology. Technology is creating new knowledge at a faster and faster pace. And the shelf life of tech, of knowledge going forward is projected to be two to three years. So if every two to three years, everything we think we know is how to do something or everything we think we know, which is the right thing to know, is being updated, mm. us human beings are going to have to basically update our stories and our knowledge, just like we have to update our our computers, our, <laughs> our devices. Yes. Mm. We're going to have to constantly update. In the challenge for human beings, we're not wired that way. We have been wired from an evolutionary aspect and, a, and a, basically a physical aspect. We're not wired to basically constantly update. Mm. And we're going to have to learn how to do that because technology is going to basically be so powerful, so smart, Technology is going to basically change how we live, how we work, and most importantly, who will work. Human mm. beings will have work going forward if they can add value in ways that technology can't add value.
0: That feels so true because we're constantly learning, unre- unlearning, and relearning with everything we do in today's society. But also, it feels overwhelming because software is incredibly efficient and almost binary in the way it just updates itself so how do humans stay relevant then in that workplace we have to develop
1: the skills which allow us to add value which the technology can't add and that basically is three different buckets Mm. one thinking differently than the technology and Mm -hmm. that is creative imaginative innovative thinking higher order critical thinking when there's lots of unknowns or lots of complexity. And the most important thing is to be able to explore and discover, to be able to go into the unknown. We don't Mm. know to go into the unknown and figure things out. And lastly, moral judgments. All right. So we got to think differently than the technology can think. The second thing is, is that for the near future, Our uniqueness will be our ability to emotionally connect in positive ways with other human beings. And that means, all right, we need to basically ourselves be able to manage our emotions, be able to put ourselves in a state of a positive emotional state. Positive emotions enable learning. Negative emotions inhibit learning. So the emotional side of human connection and human jobs, which require high emotional engagement with the customer, for example, will be jobs for the near future, will be done by human beings. The unfortunate Mm -hmm. thing in most societies, many of those service type jobs don't pay that well. The third big bucket is trade services. Trade services are when let's say, repair services. Uh, you come into your house and you have a problem with your heater or a problem with your plumbing. Mm-hmm. and An individual has got to basically figure out what is the problem and then figure out how to fix the problem all the time by basically being very dexterous. In other words, having to move around and get under the pipes and etc. cetera. Those types of jobs where you've got to identify the problem and then iteratively fix it. Will also be still be human jobs for the near future. So those are the three buckets. And what this means is, for the first time, you know, automation has hit manuf- the manufacturing sector sector around the world. You know, people have sort of already seen from the industrial revolution to the manufacturing revolution of the of recent times. People have already seen, if you will, what can happen in in that environment. But what's going to be different this time is that automation is going to occur in all the professions, Mm -hmm. all right? Mm. The legal profession, the medical profession, all right? The teaching profession. The professions are not going to be exempt. Journalists, for example. Mm. And so technology is going to basically also hone in what the professionals do. And the professionals are going to have to add value in a way that technology can't add value.
0: Yeah, it's really, for me, it seems quite scary, although exciting. Um, It's whatever field you work in, you're having to constantly bridge that gap, aren't you, between digital and human. And, of course, digital change happens at an exponential speed and human change, as we both know, is a little bit slower. Um, (laughs) (laughs) That's an
1: understatement, So, Human change is basically, you know, going at one mile an hour where the exponential change is going to, you know, thousands of miles an hour. And that's <laughs> and that's why hyperlearning is so important because yeah. the hyperlearning book try, puts forth a methodology, how we basically increase our ability to continuously learn. It's almost a new way of being, mm. right? Mm. A, new, a new way of being. We've got to be learning every day, which means we've got to, we got to bring a different self to the workplace, but it also means the workplace has got to be a different type of environment, which enables that, which the workplace seeks that. The mm. workplace makes it easy for people to do that. Most workplaces today, at least in the United States, are designed for a different model for efficiency and speed. Well, doing the type of learning that humans are going to be doing in the future is not as efficient as doing the same thing over and over and over again.
0: Mm, clearly, and I think you know, if I take that that figure you gave of the speed of change of human change, and I'm looking at how to think differently, how to connect emotionally, you know, and as you say, in organisations today, the culture is more around delivery, efficiency, speed, and there is no emotional culture. There is no explicit emotional layer to that to the organizational culture. So, you know, this for me is essentially a behavioral blueprint for us to take our human game to a higher level. But how how do you encourage organizations to do that? Because as you say, it's almost diametrically opposed to today's organizational culture and the definition of a strong leader.
1: Yes, you're 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 exactly right. And so the leaders of the organization have to basically convinced that mm-hmm. it is in the organization's best interest to basically change the environment to enable hyper learning. All right, and and that's going to be cultural changes, behavioral changes, process changes, etc. And just like any human being that has to make a big change, human beings will make a big change when they have answered the why. Why yeah. should I change? Yeah. And that has to be, in this case, a compelling why, because we're talking about big change. Mm. So why, why should I change? And as an organizational leader, we're looking at an environment where, you know, over the next 10 years, the shelf life of businesses has basically s- shrunk. In other words, yeah. companies basically either are merged bought or go out of business at a faster pace today than ever before okay a company starting today that is a public company has got a shelf life of less than 17 years mm. or, you know it wasn't that long ago it was 54 years so <laughs> things are happening that fast and so they got to come to some story and and i have found that leaders once they create their story all right that and it, it really comes down to, it's funny, the two biggest inhibitors of learning are ego and fear. Mm,
0: clearly.
1: The Two reasons why leaders will jump in and make this transformational change is ego and fear. Mm-hmm. All right. They want to be successful. They they want to have a good legacy. They fear failure or fear, fear their company not being able to compete. mm mm-hmm so they create their story that we need to put in this many times it's a cultural change definitely it's a process change mm. way of working change they create their story and they buy into it and then they have to actually themselves change how they behave so they role model the behaviors that they're asking their people to basically embrace and all of that sort of comes together and it works it works once the leadership has created their this is why and that Mm. same answer that same question why goes all the way down as you're trying to basically transform an organization i mean organizations everybody talks about digital transformation gotta gotta transform the organization organizations can't transform unless the people transform absolutely the stories have to cascade down so that you and i create our own story about why do we have to basically change? And that story's got to be a positive story, not a negative story mm. in effect that we're inadequate, but it's the story of this is how we add value, all right. And mm. we want to basically do that and have meaningful work and meaningful relationships. That's what life is all about. Well, mm. in order to do that, you know it, it helps having employment.
0: And I just want to come back to the idea of the ego and the stories we tell ourselves, because this is about systems change, isn't it clearly, but it's also about changing your internal system. So to come back to the analogy of software and updating applications, we're not updating apps, we're updating our operating system, aren't we? I would really love for you to take us through how one creates the conditions for hyper learning. We've touched on making meaning conversations, but also the mastery of self. So, Yes. The quiet ego. Can you take us through that, Ed? I love that part. Yes, yes. I the
1: fundamental building blocks of a trans organizational transformational change is the human change. And what is the human change? How we come to work. Yeah. And we have to come to work in a different way going forward. It's what I call a state of inner peace. All right. Mm-hmm. Uh, in order to excel in the digital age, we human beings have got to come to work so that we can behave in ways that increase our ability to learn and increase our ability to effectively collaborate. So we end up with what I call collective intelligence mm. right, a group. And in order to do that, it all comes down to what's going on inside of ourselves: managing our inner self, managing mm. our ego, managing our emotions. Managing our body reactions, if you will, mm. and our mind, quieting our mind. All right, this the chatterbox in our mind that's always talking to us and judging other people and critiquing ourselves. And so it's this: I've got to take ownership of my of my inner world. With the end result, I want to develop the personal skills that I have a quiet ego, a quiet mind. I can have a calm body. Manage it. I can also be, come in a positive emotional state. Positive emotions enable learning. Hmm. Negative emotions inhibit learning. And so when I come to work, what I'm seeking is this inner peace, which I define as a state of inner stillness and calmness, which is calm. Nothing's going on in our mind. The chatterbox and the critiquer and the monkey mind is gone. <laughs> it's pushed out. Hmm. It's inner stillness and calmness that enables you to embrace the world with your most non-judgmental, fearless, open mind, mm. with a lack of self-absorption. It's not it's not our focus on me looking good. It's the focus on me being part of a team that excels. All right. Mm. What's so key is the is the concept of otherness. Barbara Fredrickson, who's a leading positive psychologist and research psychologist, has some of the best work out there on the emotional side of of human connection and everything. She says, it is scientifically correct to say that nobody, nobody reaches his or her full potential in isolation. No, no. And so all of a sudden, A competitive workplace has got to become a caring, trusting workplace where people help each other collaborate and learn. Because I'm convinced going forward for any organization, it can be a business, it can be a non-for-profit, it can be a governmental organization. In the digital age, the number one strategic differentiator between organizations will be the quality of the conversations that occur in the workplace. Mm. And the goal is to have high quality conversations where you optimize the collective intelligence of the group, which will be much higher than anyone's intelligence. And the question immediately you you will ask me is, why is that the case? What's what's the story about us individually? Mm. This is the hardest thing for smart people to accept. We are all suboptimal learners. We are speedy, and this is all based in science and neuroscience. Mm. We are speedy, efficient thinkers, okay? We go out in the world. I can go out in the world today and look at something, and the science is clear. I see what I believe, mm. okay? We are highly, in effect, wired to seek confirmation of what we believe, yeah. to seek affirmation of our ego. Yeah. We are emotionally defensive because we defend what we believe. And then we have our stories of how the world works. My story is different than your world. Mm-hmm. I go out there seeking data information, which basically agrees with my story. And when yeah. you have a different story, my re- immediate reaction is to defend and deflect. And, uh, you know, I'm, my, my story is good. And so this, this all has got to basically be broken down. All right, so that we we have more ability to be open to the world, mm. to seek out novelty, to seek out disconfirming information, to you know ask questions, mm. you know, to learn from others, etc., to defer judgment. Yes, and instead of yes, but to understand <laughs> that in the industrial age era, basically human beings were taught to excel at knowing the people who are going to excel in the digital age are going to be the people who excel at
0: not knowing and figuring things out. That's a very big ask though, isn't it? Because, you know, the polarity of I I need to know everything and that's what creates my strength as a leader. And I'm okay with not knowing. It's almost like from weakness to wisdom, I call that, which is, it's that journey. Um, That is beautiful. (laughs) I've I've not
1: heard those words before, Mm. but you're so correct. Weakness to wisdom. In fact, If you don't mind going forward, I'm going to quote you on that, and and I'll give you attribution. (laughs) We the wisdom. Yes, Mm. that's and but what that says, Susie, that's so 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 wonderful. Is Mm -hmm. that gives you that that also brings to mind that we're talking about a major transformation, Mm. and every person that joins this journey, this is not a one-year journey. This is not a five-year journey. This is a rest of your life journey.
0: Yeah. A lifelong learning journey. I think it's one of the other big challenges that everybody has today in this world is the move, what I call from ego to eco. So the individual to the collective and particularly in organizations, processes, the culture, the way they work. And I think, you know, compare and compete has to become care and collaborate, which is essentially what you say around creating caring, trusting teams. And I loved the idea of, delving into the collective intelligence by asking people to make my idea better. So that was, that was a great way of putting it out there. And we were discussing this before the show, as you know, I'm a keen cellist and um, the analogy for me with collective intelligence is the orchestra and playing a symphony. And, you know, you cannot afford to stand in your ego. If you want the symphony to be successful, you have to step into eco and stay there and bring your skill set to the collective. And I just, I would love your your take on how does that fit into the make my idea better?
1: Well, it's perfect. It fits perfectly. It is the essence, mm. What you just were saying is the essence of what has to take place in the workplace. The mindset of me going in, if you will, I'm coming into the table, you're coming into the table and you're bringing different skills. You're playing a different instrument to me. Mm but basically what we're looking for is bringing all the instruments together and putting them together because together they will we will create something that not one of us by ourselves we can can create and that's the collective intelligence mm. thing so it's understanding if you will the science behind collective intelligence but it's also individually how we come to the table. We got to come to the table with the right mindset, with that story, Mm. coming here to contribute and help us as a team get to the right answer, what's called an idea meritocracy. In order for that to occur, you got to basically have caring, trusting teams that are not, people are not competing with each other. Mm. Everybody's going to come and treat each other with human dignity and respect no one is going to do harm to anyone. No one is going to make people intentionally make people look bad. Mm. People are, are going to basically, you know, put down their defensiveness, but also their, their ego is, is, is very quiet. So they're going to seek to understand in e- each other. And the process of understanding is a different process than the process of advocating. Yes, right. absolutely. Right. Mm. And so you and the orchestra you're not competing with the drummer. No, (laughs) the drummer's bringing something different to the table. Mm. And so if you were, you know, playing your instrument louder and louder and louder to try to put out the drummer, the drummer's going to beat louder and louder. And what's going to happen? We're going to have a huge impasse that basically makes it impossible for the challenge that we're doing in the workplace to go to a higher level. It is Mm. exactly the same thing that I'm talking about in what's, but it's, What's interesting is it's, it's a, it may be a little easier in the symphony or the orchestra aspect because each instrument, player in, in group themselves can be a collective, and their goal is to, we will basically bring our instrument to the symphony at, the, at its highest level. Everybody can achieve the highest level in their little area of competence. And I'm not when I use the word little, I'm not a it. <laughs> we're, in, we're in the business world, we think about competence as the end result. Right? Yes, yes. And people don't think about what do I bring to the table that's unique, that's added to other people's uniqueness, that's gonna create this new magical result. All right. And that's also sort of a mindset because we all bring something unique because no you know, we're raised differently. We have different experiences, all right. Mm. We have different abilities to access our subconscious, which is our subconscious mind is much, much bigger than our conscious mind. And our subconscious mind is where the creativity and imagination, if you will, in the highest level of thinking, emergent thinking comes to. Mm. Just like the symphony is trying to basically, you know, hit that peak when it's all great. The Mm. The goal in collaboration and collective intelligence is to get to the state where it's flowing and It's emergent thinking. Things just come out of people that were not planned. That just comes together. Mm. I've experienced that with organizations, and it is magical. It is magical, just like the magic of the symphony. You are so spot on on this. (laughs) So spot on.
0: It is magical, and I think you know you do have to step away from your conscious mind deliberately. There's lots of other things I would like to discuss with you. But in the interest of time, we've looked at sort of the human aspect of inner peace and creating the conditions for oneself to be a hyper learner. This conversation really moves me to the second part of your book on humanizing the workplace and the whole idea of collective intelligence. But I really wanted to stop on collective flow, the idea of collective flow and You know, you describe it as it being a heightened level of productivity and a gateway to the highest levels of creative and innovative thinking, emotional engagement and high order critical thinking. And we've just made the analogy with an orchestra playing a symphony. But how do organizations create that state or how do teams create that state of collective flow?
1: That's a wonderful question. It takes lots of personal work first of all, it, it comes down to each individual. Okay. Let's say we have a team of five or six people. Mm-hmm. These, these people must have done a lot of the hard work and continuously do the hard work, working on the quieting the ego, the quieting the mind, mm-hmm. being a good listener, etc. Managing one's emotions, not mm-hmm. being defensive, understanding otherness that we need each other to excel. And so doing the work to come to the table in the right mindset. And then companies that I've worked with that have excelled at collective flow put in place processes where each meeting starts with a two to three to five minute meditation and a short emotional check-in by Mm -hmm. everybody as to how everybody is, where, where's your state of mind, so to speak. So that basically in the mindfulness meditation is to bring everybody fully present and more calm. And so So they start out by saying, let's make sure we've got our base level. And what happens in these types of conversations, I think everybody listening understands the psychological definition of flow. And that's when Mm -hmm. I'm totally all into something and time just loses time. and, And it's just like my whole body's into whether it's a mountain climbing, an athletic event, a sport or a conversation. Time just flies. I'm not sitting there worrying about how I look and I'm not sitting there <laughs> thinking, does Susie think I'm smart? <laughs> or I don't know the answer here and I don't want any people to think, you know, X, Y, Z. It, it, things just start flowing. I'm all in. I'm all hmm. in and time flies. And collective flow is when the team, say five, six people are all in. And it's just like your symphony playing. Everybody is just flowing individually. And that comes together. And what that does is creates the, the magic and allows things to emerge. I mean, I've sat in on conversations with organizations where the state, their goal is to get to collective flow. And what comes out of the collective flow in many cases is highly innovative, creative mm-hmm. thinking that, basically doesn't relate to the project or the purpose, but that has released and creates a big new opportunity. All right. Mm-hmm. And and so it not only can accelerate the quality of the decision making as to what the meeting purpose of the meeting is, but sometimes it leads to a big new NEW, mm-hmm. big new, a big unique, a big wow, all right. Mm-hmm. That can be quite transformative. And so it's highly emotional. It's highly emotional. And it comes down to whether people truly care about each other and trust each other and truly believe that no one's going to do me harm. I am here in a safe place.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: I'm in a safe place. People, I've got my hands, probably can't see them. But my my teammates will not let me fall too far You know, down. I may trip. But mm. you don't catch me before I hit the ground.
0: All right. and, yeah.
1: And that caring, trusting relationship. What the science is so fascinating about the science, and this is this science is controversial if you're a, a person of the of the male gender. Mm-hmm. Uh, the best research on collective intelligence has been done at MIT, which, as you know, is an engineering and a technology school, which I find very fascinating. And They've done five, did five research studies on the, basically this research projects on what I'm fixing to talk about. Carnegie Mellon didn't believe it. Carnegie Mellon did three research projects. So you got Carnegie Mellon and MIT, two great technology Mm -hmm. engineering schools. All right. The research shows the most effective collaborative teams and the research assumes since of the universities they are. The design is a good design. Teams were broken up into teams of five people. Mm-hmm. Certain teams were going to solve complex problems. Other teams were going to do creative work. So there was two different types of project. The results were the same. If you would do complex problem solving or creativity, imagination, innovation, etc.
0: Okay.
1: The most successful collaborative teams, most productive were teams that had five women and zero men. Mm-hmm. The second place teams were teams that had four women and one man.
0: Yes. And the
1: because- third place they only went down to three. The third place were teams that had three women and two men. So there's a common thread to that. It's it's very interesting. Some years ago I was giving a talk in Seattle, Washington to alumni of our school who worked at Microsoft and uh, Amazon and other technology companies. And a woman raised her hand and, and said, "During that, at, after I talked about this research, she said, Professor Hess, you're aware that women today can basically choose the father of their baby if they want from <laughs> you know sperm storage facilities and pick the best and the brightest in everything, and therefore be able to have a baby without you know being married or without a a, a man being involved." And I said yes. I'm aware of that. She says, "Well, in light of what you said, in the light of that, why do women need men in the workplace?" <laughs> and, and you know, I looked around the audience, and it was probably 30 percent women and 70 percent men. And you can imagine the men's ears started turning yes, red. I can imagine <laughs> and face and everything. <clears throat> and since they were all alum, alumni of the school that I, I was teaching at. I was you know, shrewd enough to know to basically, this is one time when you ask a question instead of <laughs> and I asked her, what do you think? And she mm. says, I'm trying hard to figure it out. And I don't see what the value add is, even though I wish there was one. And I tell that story comically. All right. In a sense, but it's so true in the sense because it motivates men to realize, okay, mm. this doesn't come naturally to us because of the way we were raised. Yes. And the way we're wired in the mm. culture, we're supposed to be strong. Yeah. We're supposed to know it all. We're mm. supposed to, you know, not be weak. No emotions. <laughs> yes, no emotions. Mm. Okay. When when I joined the business world, you know, decades ago, I mean, I actually, in my introduction, was told by a, a senior leader, Ed, when you come to work, leave your emotions at the door. They wow. don't belong in any workplace. Wow. So what, what's so different now about the digital age. If you leave your emotions, one, you can't do that. No one ever was able to do that. You can't leave your emotions outside. But the success in the digital age is going to be highly dependent on one's emotional state and how hmm. one emotionally engages with their colleagues and with their customers and with other people in society. Emotions are go- are going to be the key differentiator because the technology is going to be ubiquitous. Everybody's going to have the artificial intelligence technology and the deep learning.
0: Mm. What's going
1: to be different is the performance of the humans, what they do with that technology. And that performance is highly dependent upon the emotional state of being of the individual and the teams. It's so fascinating that all of a sudden, COVID brought emotions into the workplace in in the last year, year and a half. And what's clear is, is that COVID is a very bad thing, but if COVID did one thing that's going to push us forward, organizations are not going to be able to go back and push emotions out of the workplace.
0: No, no.
1: And that's a positive.
0: Yes, it's but, and I think women bring that to the table more naturally as they're more socially sensitive. Often it's clearly a generalization, but as a generalization. But I think what COVID did to women in the workplace is also the she-session that's happening now is a lot of women are stepping out of the workplace So I I think that's a critical competitive advantage discussion for organizations around, therefore, how do we keep that emotional uh, literacy, if you like, in the workplace? And when you state in your book, collective flow is how the magic of you is optimized and shared. I loved that statement because it's essentially about creating inclusive environments, isn't it? And and hyperlearning is around inclusive leadership, inclusive environments. And, you know, for our listeners, everything that Ed is talking about is brilliantly documented in, in his book. And it's it's more like a playbook. And I love that aspect of it because you can come back to it. It's a learning journey in itself. So what would be your advice to organisations looking to make sure, taking into account that women are leaving the workplace often, to make sure that they are starting to create this environment for hyper learning to happen collectively?
1: Well, they the leaders have to buy in the story that yeah. uh, that we've been talking about that this is necessary for organizational success mm. and competitive as you know many men leaders are if they buy into the story you know i'm confident they'll figure out how to basically make sure that they are hiring a diverse inclusive group of people from mm. different backgrounds all right and especially dealing with the emotional side and i think that What's I've written in, in an article for CEO world that every business is going to be in every successful business going forward is going to be in the human development business in addition to its core business. And that is going to be a huge change for most HR functions,
0: exactly. which, are,
1: which are compliance oriented. And there's re- reluctance in many cases of senior HR people are not trained in the development side. And so that openness has to come. And so We've got to get the the right, there's got to be the, the right story, all right? Then there's mm. got to be the right processes, and it ultimately comes down to coming to agreement as to how we want to behave together and how we want to treat each other and helping people change behaviors in a rigorous way, all right, mm. and having people working on behaviors and measuring their behaviors daily and sharing their measurements with teammates and getting feedback to teammates. I have one global company that's global there around the world in every team meeting room, they have created their rules of engagement and the rules of engagement are listed on the wall and they go through them before they start the meeting. And then after each meeting, they grade the team on how we did, how we behave with each other in this meeting. And it's that type of rigor, which is going to be necessary. And, you're spot on. It's going to take a different mentality Mm. and leaders are going to have to sit back and basically say, this is happening much faster than I thought. And it's going to accelerate. And the organization, the organization we will be five and 10 years from now will be completely different from a emotional, cultural aspect than what got us here, and it goes back to that old saying, what got you here is not going to get you there. I did another article for CEO World where I predicted by 2030 that 50% of the Fortune 500 companies in the world are going to be uh, led CEO is going to be a woman. And I truly believe that. And today, the, as you know, the number is much, yes, much lower. Much that. lower, yeah. But I think that basically technology is going to require humanizing the workplace, because those are the skills that are going to basically make the human component value add. Now in some industries, that's not going to change. There are certain industries where you don't, that you're doing the same thing over and over again. And it's, it doesn't take creativity. There's not a lot of human interaction. All right. It's just machine to machine. Those industries that'll be different than anything that's consumer products and media and the financial world, anything that's, that the, their human engagement, customer-wise, is is uh, the primary part of the business. All of those businesses that are human-related are going to have to transform, or they'll be
0: extinct. Mm. And as you said right at the beginning, it has to start from the top because that's where permission is given, is demonstrated, and role modelled in terms of behaviours. What, for you, are the three main behaviours at the top of an organisation needed if they want to create? A culture of learning? Well, I think
1: the difficulty is choosing the three, but I think it goes in sort of, a, it's a building blocks. Mm. I think you have to start at humility, all mm-hmm. right? I think you have, to, you have to start at humility. You've got to get to the mindfulness part of being totally present and aware. Humility takes care of the ego. And then I think you got to basically get to the otherness part, the acceptance of the fact that I need others and And being able to relate and communicate with others is important. And so Mm. I think it's that getting rid of that competitive environment, but it's that how do I engage with others? How do I behave so other people feel safe being themselves with me? Okay. Mm. How do I behave as, the, as leaders and managers? So people, you know, you, you take the concept of psychological safety. Mm. How do I operationalize that concept behaviorally? Yes. Uh, you know, when, when, I, when I do work with leaders, I put out there, I say, you know, if you're in a team meeting and somebody doesn't feel safe to speak up, what are you going to do? What are you going to say? You know, many leaders will say, well, I'm going to ask them why they, why they don't feel safe. Mm-hmm. And I said, well, where does that put all of the burden on? <laughs> they need to tell me why they don't feel safe. I said, have you ever thought about asking the question, what do I need to do to help you feel safe?
0: Mm.
1: You own Mr. Leader. You own safety. You own it. You need to behave in a ways ways that people trust you and will take the jump to speak out and say things differently and overcome their fears Mm. you own it and that's one of the big changes that has to play it's not basically i'm going to tell them what to do and it's up to them to do it no
0: it's Mm. how you behave yeah and how you enable those behaviors and you say in your book that leaders are enablers which completely agree they are And, you know, it's a paradigm shift for them again, isn't it? To show up with a little bit more vulnerability and to create an environment where people can actually express themselves. I hear a lot of, oh, psychological safety, mean being nice to everyone. It's like, no, I don't mean being nice to everyone. I mean, creating, it's quite the contrary, creating an environment where you can have healthy challenge and people can turn up as themselves and express themselves. And And I think that takes a lot of time. Yes, it does take time. It does take
1: time, Organizations that basically adopt, say, the the hyper-learning model, they see results in a a year. They see really good results in two years. Three years, they're a completely different organization. Hmm. Takes time. It Hmm. takes time because it takes time to build trust, and then it takes time for people to change behaviors. Hmm. And you Hmm. can't change eight behaviors at once. No, unfortunately not. (laughs) And, and so you're working, working up, and you never reach this. You you can always take it at a higher level. I mean, one organization I'm working with, they're in their sixth year. I mean, that organization can get in the state of collective flow almost at will, but hmm. they're trying to even take it to a higher level. It's not only good for the business and good for the people, but what's so fascinating is it's good for people's personal lives and home lives. Uh, it's so it's so rewarding in the work I do to have men senior leaders take me to the side and say that you know this is really my my relationship at home is you know my wife says I listen better (laughs) and Mm. I'm I'm more open to what she's saying I says well how does that feel he says it feels really good because she's she's really happier with me I said Mm. well that's good and Mm. I mean and so it's sort of like this is not just something I'm going to work on that just sort of makes my work life better. It will also make people's home lives better in their interactions with their significant others and their mm.
0: children and their relatives and their friends. Mm. Yeah, it's it's deliberately developmental practice, isn't it? And you know, it is, it is about listening, listening to oneself, which you know we don't have a lot of time to do unless we deliberately carve out that time, and then listening to others. Ed, time is running. I would like to ask you one last thing, though. What would your call to action be to organizations and leaders looking to humanize their workplace? Embrace or basically come to
1: the answer as to why you should do this. Look at what's happening in the world, look at all of the predictions from the experts, and ask yourself the question what is my duty to the organization? Put this organization in a position that it will basically add value to society, to the world, to our customers, to our employees. What how do we need to basically change the way we work so we can basically work well together in this digital age. So I think it's the the leaders need to basically sit back and look at reality and they've got to create their story. And they probably need help creating that story. And they probably got to look in the mirror and ask themselves, okay, am I really taking care long-term of the health of this organization? And am I taking care of the, I'll call it health in quotes, because it's more than just physical health, hmm. health of my employees. And most leaders, if they answer that correctly, i going to say either, No, I'm not, or I can do this much better, and it's my duty to do this. And so we've got to have basically a, we've got to become much more humanistic and with a global perspective. Okay. We need to be human instead of do human. That's right. All of the fast doing will be done by technology and Mm. robots. Mm. Okay. And so that movement from fast doing we have to basically invest our time in elevating our being, the human being part that's going to be necessary. Being leads to, if you will, the, the doing, which is the behaviors. All right? mm. But it's, you're, you're quite correct. Technology will be very fast and efficient. We're going to have to accept the fact that what the humans are going to need to do is not
0: fast or efficient. <laughs> Excellent. Thank you very much. I'll, I'll leave our listeners with that thought. Ed, thank you so much for coming and sharing your thoughts, your research, and your experience with us. Where can people find out more about you, your work, and, and what you do? I have a website,
1: www.edhess.org, which basically has, has the hyper-learning book, my humility book, blogs, writing, visuals, personal stories, lots of stuff. It's all mm-hmm. free, and people... You're quite correct. The Hyper Learning book is really a workbook, a how-to mm-hmm. book. People can download the prologue of the book for free from the website so they can see what it's about and also see an example of, of the reflection times and the workshops with deliverables. That's sort of like a, a one-stop shop. Of, mm-hmm. you know, people can get a, a really uh, good feel. That's where I would basically say go first.
0: Okay, fabulous. Thank you. And I would invite you all to go and have a look at the hyperlearning prologue and journey. I think it can be uh, life-changing, as we've already said. We hope you enjoyed this episode and the learnings it brought you. Please head over to iTunes and give us your opinion, if so. And it's bye from me for now. And see you soon for the next episode of Let's Talk Transformation.